say for ages that there's lots and lots more episodes of my podcast on Patreon. So if you were to look for author Steph Young, Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N, you'll find lots and lots more episodes of the podcast that I've been doing for four years. And I just forgot to say, thank you. Tales of the Afterlife. Let's begin with American Thomas Halver Edison, who became known as the man who invented the electric light, the phonograph, the motion picture camera, although some say this was actually invented by Frenchman Louis Le Prince, who mysteriously vanished. What most people possibly don't know is that Edison was also busily working away in his laboratory, attempting to build a very mysterious device that he hoped would make it possible to communicate with the dead. Or was he? And if so, where is this device? In the October 1920 issue of the American magazine, Edison said, If our personality survives, then it is strictly logical or scientific to assume that it retains memory, intellect, other faculties, and knowledge that we acquire on this earth. I'm inclined to believe that our personality hereafter will be able to affect matter. If this reasoning be correct, then, if we can evolve an instrument so delicate as to be affected by our personality as it survives in the next life, such an instrument, when made available, ought to record something, he said. Edison was 73 years of age at the time, and he said, I've been at work for some time building an apparatus to see if it is possible for personalities which have left this earth to communicate with us. Writer Stacy Horn, when looking further into Edison's life for her book Unbelievable, says that he also told a Boston Globe reporter, man is not the unit of life. The unit of life consists of swarms of billions of highly organised entities which live in the cells. I believe at times that when man dies, this swarm deserts the body, goes out into space, but keeps on and enters another last cycle of life and is immortal. To the owner of Forbes magazine, Edison said, If this is ever accomplished, it will be accomplished, not by any occult, mystifying, mysterious or weird means, such as are employed by so-called mediums, but by scientific methods. This was around the time that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was diving deep into the new spiritualist movement with gusto, while his very good friend Harry Houdini was actively trying to debunk any charlatans in the movement. Well, if successful, says staff writer for Forbes, Kristin Tablang, in a retrospective upon Edison, she said Edison's electric ghost machine would be able to detect the personalities of the deceased, allowing them to relay messages from the spirit realm. Edison had apparently said, I'm hopeful that by providing the right kind of instrument, we can receive intelligent messages from it in its changed habitation. And in the New York Times in 1921, Edison was quoted as developing a machine that would measure 100 trillion life units in the human body that may scatter after death. The editor of Scientific American reportedly received hundreds of letters from curious readers inquiring about Edison's device after the articles were published. The October 1933 edition of Modern Mechanics magazine published an article describing amazing Edison's secret experiments. For 13 years, results of Edison's astounding attempt to penetrate that wall that lies beyond mortality have been withheld from the world. But now, 
the amazing story can be told. Well, the article detailed a supposed secret gathering of a select group of anonymous scientists, which had taken place a decade earlier at Edson's laboratory. The article says, One black, howling, wintry night in 1920, just such a night when superstitious people would bar their doors and windows against marauding ghosts, Thomas Edison, the famous inventive wizard, gathered a small group of scientists in his laboratory to witness his secret experiments to lure spirits from beyond the grave and trap them with instruments of incredible sensitivity. Until recently, only a favoured few spectators ever knew what unearthly forms materialised in the laboratory that night to give proof. But now, the amazing story can be told. The secret experiment, they said, took place in a darkened room surrounded with generators and other experimental equipment. When the experiment was ready to begin, spiritualists in the group were called upon to summon from eternity the ethereal forms of its inhabitants and command the spirits to walk across the beam. The scientists watched intently the meter of the electric eye, which would flicker the instant any ghostly form interrupted the light beam. Edison created, they said, a photoelectrical cell, a tiny pencil of light coming from a powerful lamp which bored through the darkness and struck the active surface of this cell, where it was transformed instantly into a feeble electric current. Any object, no matter how thin, transparent or small, would cause a registration on the cell if it cut through the beam. So movement, apparently, would indicate contact from the spirit world, although apparently there was no movement on the night of the secret experiment with the group of invited guests. But this was just one of Edison's devices, apparently. He was also working on a spirit phone. But this spirit phone has never been found. Edison's prototypes and machines mysteriously vanished. Or did they? And Edison denied he'd ever been working on them. In a 1926 New York Times interview, Edison said that his interview with B.C. Forbes in the American magazine was just a prank. He said, I really had nothing to tell him, but I hated to disappoint him. So I thought up this story about communicating with spirits, but it was all a joke. Yet, he had previously told the magazine, I am engaged in the construction of one such apparatus now, and I hope to be able to finish it before very many months pass. We'll fast forward now to one day in 2015, and French radio presenter Philippe Baudouin was browsing through a thrift store in Paris when he came across a very rare edition of Edison's Diary. This 1949 French edition of the diary, Edison's original published diary, was intact, with the missing final chapter that had subsequently been removed from later editions. And this chapter was dedicated to spiritualism and Edison's theory on communicating with those in the afterlife. It was a chapter the subsequent editions of his book had left out. This chapter also included his plans for the elusive spirit phone, which he described here as an extremely sensitive phonographic apparatus, which would be capable of picking up ghostly voices from the other side of the veil. These voices, he mused, were around us all the time, but this device would amplify them. The English version of his diary, which was widely circulated, had not contained this chapter. 
Baudouin republished the diary as the Kingdom of the Afterlife, in which Edison writes, I sought to build a scientific apparatus allowing the dead, if possible, to enter into contact with us. If what we call personality remains after death, if the beings who have stripped the human form cannot act and move, they will communicate at least with those they have left here below, thanks to my device, which will give them this opportunity to act. Boudouin asks, what exactly was his unfinished necrophone project? What did he manage to hear? Well, Tom Woolworth of the organisation itcvoices.org, an expert in instrumental transcommunication, explains how the crucial chapter of Edison's diary became lost. The Edison estate, he says, apparently, according to him, not only redacted the 80 plus pages of spiritualism from his diary and had it repressed, but, he alleges, the estate also held on to his documents for over 50 years until they were sent to Rutgers University. Only the first edition of this book has a section on spiritualism. He says, I have in my possession two first editions of this book by Edison. The very first publication, Run, contains the information on spiritualism. After the book became public, his family called for the section to be redacted and a different first version was made available. Well, curiously, a seance was supposedly held in 1941 in the presence of a medium called Mary Olson and other participants including Harry Gardner and James Gilbert Ernest Wright, who was a Scottish electrical engineer and a researcher for General Electric. He'd invented putty and was involved in the publication Borderland Sciences. He and Gardner claimed that during the seance, Edison came through to them and told them all about the spirit machine he'd been working on and where to find his lost blueprints and prototype of the machine. Wright then claimed they found the documents and built the machine. However, they could not make it work, they said. Inspired by this, however, they did then go on to build their own machine, comprised of a small sound box, a microphone and a loudspeaker. They were assisted in this, they claimed, by the spirit of Edison who helped them. But where are Edison's prototypes now? Tim Walworth says, The Edison estate has avowed that Thomas was never involved in work with a device to communicate with the dead because no plans or instruments have ever turned up. ITC Voices have the lost chapter online, if anybody wants to look. And apparently Edison wrote, This apparatus is in the nature of a valve, so to speak, it is similar to a modern powerhouse where man, with his relatively puny 1.8 horsepower, turns a valve which starts a 50,000 horsepower steam turbine. My apparatus is along those lines. But beyond that, I don't care to say anything further regarding its nature. I've been working out the details for some time. Indeed, a collaborator in this work died only the other day, in that he knew exactly what I am after in this work. I believe he ought to be the first to use it if he is able to do so. Edison ends the chapter with, that is why I am now at work on the most sensitive apparatus I have ever undertaken to build. But his invention seems to be lost. Another famous inventor, Scotsman John Logie Baird, born in 1888, and the inventor of the television, also recorded an interesting incident in his memoirs with regards to Thomas Edison. He begins it with a strange tale first. He says, I was staying in a small hotel. One day, a bent-up elderly man appeared in the board room. He was a professor and a distinguished entomologist, and he had a very strange story to tell. It appeared 
He had been called in to investigate the activities of a medium called Marjorie, a respectable married lady who had lost her only son in tragic circumstances. This boy, Jack, one morning, in a fit of depression, had gone into the bathroom and cut his throat, leaving the razor with blood-stained thumb marks on the floor. This razor had been locked away untouched. Marjorie was heartbroken from losing her only son and she turned to a spiritualist circle for help in contacting her dead son. Much to everyone's surprise, at this spiritualist circle, it was quickly discovered that Marjorie seemed to be in possession of remarkable mediumistic abilities herself. In the darkened room of the seance, she would apparently go into a deep trance and while in this state, writes Baird, her body extruded a strange vapour called ectoplasm. This extraordinary substance floated about her like a cloud and was of such a mysterious nature that it could be used by the spirits to build ectoplasmic bodies. The spirit of Jack, her departed son, appeared. Not only did he speak and answer questions, but he used the ectoplasm to materialise his hand and shook hands with the audience, wrote messages, and moved objects, and did all that a hand floating in space could do. It was after this extraordinary night that the esteemed professor was called upon to come as an independent scientific observer to test. He approached the matter with complete scepticism and went to work with the careful thoroughness of a highly trained observer. The elderly professor was, however, hampered by the seances and resulting manifestations of Jack always being held in the dark, as was customary practice for seances, ectoplasm being highly sensitive to light, which destroys it, with dreadful results to the medium, profuse bleeding and even death. Such was the tale, says Baird. Nevertheless, the professor shook hands with the ectoplasmic manifestation. The hand, he said, felt hard and cold like the skin of a serpent. But of its existence, there was no doubt. Then he was struck with a really brilliant idea. No two thumbprints were alike. Why not get Jack's ectoplasmic hand to make a fingerprint and compare it with the prints on the carefully preserved razor? At the next seance, Jack was asked to press his ectoplasmic hand onto a piece of wax to leave his print. Then the print was compared with the prints on the bloody razor. Wright spared. The prints were identical. He said the professor had heard that I had a device which enabled a person to see in the dark. He wanted to borrow this so that he could watch the whole process of materialisation. I agreed at once to take part in this, and he went off to arrange matters. I never saw him again. He was killed in a motor accident. A spiritualist told me that this was undoubtedly the action of the spirit forces and the results of his effort to pry into sacred secrets. Well, it was shortly after this that Baird's contact with Edison apparently came. It started with the arrival of a man at the company where Baird was working who had brought with him an invention that he wanted to show to Baird. It was an electric motor controlled by a tuning fork. Baird says he had it with him, but had some difficulty in making it run properly. 
I suggested he should come back when the troubles were overcome. He rose to go, and as a parting shot, he said, Would you care to have definite and irrefutable evidence of the survival of the personality after death? I said, Yes, I would give everything I possessed for such evidence. Well, he said, You only have to go to West Wimbledon. I duly arrived at the address given, a small, highly respectable villa. Here I was welcomed by a party of elderly ladies and gentlemen and given tea. Then a medium arrived, a nervous-looking woman of about 35. We trooped up to the séance room. Here there was arranged a circle of chairs, and in the centre of this a small box like a sentry box, draped in black, with a chair. The medium was handcuffed to this chair. The audience sat around, on the other chairs provided, each person held a hand of each of his neighbours and put a foot on one of his neighbours' feet so that any undetected movement of hand or foot was impossible. Lights were then extinguished. The leader, an elderly gent with whiskers, then led the singing of a hymn. This was followed by a prayer. Then darkness and silence, broken only by a mysterious, steady humming sound which I learned afterwards, came from an electrical tuning fork. The rhythmic sound was found to assist manifestations. We waited and waited. The darkness and silence had a most eerie effect. Then the old lady next to me squeezed my hand and whispered, Look, it's coming. Sure enough, in front of the booth, faint and almost invisible, a wavering purple-coloured cloud was forming. It grew denser, and then the silence was broken by the irregular tapping of a Morse key. The spirit was signalling by tapping in Morse code. The message was directed to me, and it came from no less a person than Thomas Alva Edison. Edison had, it appeared, been experimenting with noctovision in his home in the astral plane, and he was convinced that it would in time prove of great use in assisting communication between the living and those who had passed over. But the time was not ripe, and to attempt to use it now would incur grave danger. He was, however, says Baird, continuing his research and would communicate with me when the time came to use Noctovision. Here, his message stopped, and Edison left, and gave place to another spirit called Lily. Lily was more domestic in her messages, and gave detailed advice to one of the circle upon what to do for her rheumatism and how to handle various family troubles. I remembered that I had a lunch appointment and time was passing, and so I whispered to the leader that I had an engagement. If he would excuse me, I would slip out. I bade a hurried and apologetic goodbye. Well, there is also more potential evidence that Thomas Edison kept up his experimentation in communication after death, this time from the famous Skull Experiments in England. In the 1990s, the skull experiments were conducted by couples Robin and Sandra Foy and mediums Alan and Diana Bennett, who all had a long-held deep interest in spiritualism. Their sessions took place in the cellar of the Foy's 16th century farmhouse in the village of Skull in Norfolk. Robin Foy is a former RAF pilot. And Alan Bennett and his wife described themselves as both psychics, with Bennett being a retired carpenter. The experiments took place for five years, between 1993 and 1998. As a group, 
they say, the Skoll experiment is now widely regarded as the most important scientific investigation of evidence for life after death. Highly qualified and objective scientists who attended the group's sessions came away convinced that mostly invisible discarnate intelligences were making direct contact with those present. Although there are, of course, also sceptics and critics of these claims. But they say, among the investigating teams were electrical engineers, astrophysicists, criminologists, psychologists and mathematicians. They say that the aim of the group was to produce tangible objects from the spirit world. Not just one tangible object, but such a huge number and variety that scientists, they say, would have to sit up and take notice. Soon after the experiment began, a team of spirit communicators apparently made themselves known. The group were told that their spirit team consisted of thousands of minds all working in unison, who knew that convincing proof had to include tangible evidence, which could be tested and taken away from the site of experiments for further scrutiny. They explain, the spirit team was apparently able to create events in our dimension by influencing atoms and molecules here using the power of their thoughts. As the sessions in the darkness of the cellar took place, lights would appear from nowhere, sounds, whispers and reports. The spirits were bringing things. The first report, or object, to arrive in the cellar was a Churchill crown coin in October 93. In November of the same year, a silver thimble also arrived, two small silver lockets, a silver chain bracelet, a St Christopher medallion, all appeared from out of nowhere. There was only one entrance into the cellar, and no one else was in the house. Other objects included a decorated bowl, a gold medallion, and more all somehow appearing inside the cellar. In total, more than 70 objects appeared, from nowhere. A copy of the Daily Express newspaper also manifested in the cellar, dated Monday, May the 28th, 1945. One could accuse the group of having stored an old copy of the newspaper for years and simply placed it in the cellar to pretend it had magically appeared. However, it had none of the yellowing that would have occurred had it been an old newspaper kept for years. And in fact, after a few weeks of its appearance in the cellar, it did then begin to turn yellow, as all papers do when they're kept. It seemed impossible for it to have been kept by anyone in the group for over 40 years and sneaked into the cellar unless it had been kept in airtight storage. More evidence arrived in the form of pictures and writing somehow imprinted onto photographic film explains Bennett on their site dedicated to the skull experiment. We were asked through trance communication to bring a camera containing film into the group session for the spirit team to experiment with. The spirit team always informed us when they thought that they'd been successful and we were then advised to have the films processed. Bennett adds, for security purposes, we were sealing the films in their containers and asking our guests to sign over the seals. Some would even place secret marks of their own on the seals without telling us. This was to avoid the accusation of cheating, of course, and many times the group would have scientists and researchers with them for the experiments in order to allow scrutiny. 
One image that appeared on the blank film was a crowded street scene. The group say, the sun is shining just above the crowd. We noticed a Singer sewing machine sign just visible above a shop doorway. Other images that appeared on the film were St Paul's Cathedral in the 1940s Blitz, with smoke all around it, and Notre Dame Cathedral. They say the next day the film was developed and the results were startling. The group's first reaction was that they must have been given the wrong film by mistake. But it was their film because the first shot was the view from one of the farmhouse windows. The windows where the group were. The images had appeared on new factory sealed film cartridges that had been placed inside a padlocked box. One psychical investigator, Alan Gold, did point out that he discovered this padlocked box could be quickly and easily opened in the dark, which would have allowed for substitution of the film rolls. And the box also was provided by the mediums themselves too. But now we get to Edison. One reel of film, which had originally been new and blank, now showed a remarkable set of images. They say details of trans-dimensional communication device the germanium receptor, and signature initials, T-A-E. Was this Thomas Edison, the group wondered? This new blank reel of film had been in a sealed box, and it had happened in the presence of esteemed members of the Society for Psychical Research, the oldest spiritualist research group in England. They say these images were received on 35mm film, and no camera was used. The film reel was simply placed on the table and the communicators, i.e. the spirits, transmitted the images to it, they said. A signature also appeared on film, T-A-E. Well, the Skull Group were determined to find out if this could be Edison and so they sent a tracing of the signature to the office of the Edison National Historic Site in West Orange, New Jersey. Douglas Tarr, the archives technician, responded to the Skull Group with samples of Edison's handwriting, including an initialed comment by him on a letter dated 1925. It proved virtually identical to the TAE signature that had appeared on film in the sealed box in the cellar of the farmhouse in Skull 72 years later. The Skull Group say consultant engineer Dr. Walter Schnittger from Germany travelled to oversee the security for the padlocked box photographic experiments. Dr. Schnittger's response was, I have no normal explanation for how the images got onto the film. The Skull Group say some of the scientists suggested that extra precautions be taken, including bringing their own blank films and putting them in a padlocked box for the duration of the session. Despite this, the images continued to appear on the films. Photos of faces and places appeared, and often cryptic messages and clues to puzzles that the investigators were invited to solve. Doctors, professors, lawyers, and other highly experienced and qualified investigators all scrutinised the seances in the cellar, and at other venues in front of many witnesses. None found evidence of trickery or fraud, say the Skull Group. Well, one criticism that could be levelled against the experiments is that the mediums themselves appeared to be in charge of the locked box and they were also not personally searched before the sessions began. So, sleight of hand, we could wonder? 
The mediums were made to wear fluorescent wristbands, however, for the purpose of making their hand movements visible in the darkness, if they were attempting to cheat. And yet, if cheating were possible, how could they have come up with Edison's exact signature? Montague Keane, investigator for the Psychical Research Society, said the investigators could find no evidence of deception or human interference. Such a collective deception would have had to embrace an enviable competence in the magical arts, feats of memory, technological know-how, ventriloquism, physical agility, enabling well-rounded figures to squeeze undetected behind chairs and feet in a crowded room while maintaining the precise accents, idiosyncrasies and inflections of speech characteristic of the purported discarnate entities. He concludes, perhaps rather unhelpfully, it was either all fraud or all genuine. Many disembodied voices were heard in the sessions. Keane also describes a sitting at which he was present where one member of the group held a tape recorder containing a blank cassette tape. The microphone of the tape recorder was then removed. At the same time, Robin Foy, one of the members of the Skull group, held another tape recorder to record anything that might come out of the other tape recorder. Then, the play button on the recorder with the blank tape, but no microphone, was pressed on. According to Keane, the blank tape then began playing the sound of piano music. It was recognised as Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, and it was accompanied by a discarnate voice. Keane wrote in his report for the SPR, The view of two experts was that the recording did give every sign of having been crudely faked. There appeared to be normal human breathing, noises like those made when the microphone is accidentally knocked, and a reverberating sound typical of recording at a distance. But since no one has yet been able to explain just what characteristics spirit-made films would have to possess to distinguish them from man-made, or what noises a spirit-made tape would have to make to qualify as a discarnate product, their conclusion is clearly unsound. Keane's report describes the materialisation of poems, symbols and messages in several languages. There were also shadowy figures described as angelic forms, visible in the dim light provided by animated entities and accompanied by gentle brushes against hands or face. The experiment as a whole could certainly come in for some rational criticism in that the mediums weren't physically searched, despite this being standard protocol for most serious seance groups. Also, perhaps we could criticise the fact that background music was normally played throughout the sittings. The group says, save for when communicators ask for the music to be changed or made softer. Well, the sound of music could presumably provide cover to mask the sound of movements in the room. If a person wanted to get up and move around and tinker with things, surely. And singing by a seance is often used or music at the start of a session to set a conducive atmosphere to encourage the spirits to manifest. But this music's not usually played throughout the session. Also, although the mediums did wear fluorescent wristbands, the mediums were not physically restrained, and so perhaps it would have been possible to remove the bands and move freely around, and to even touch the faces of others, or blow air at them, masquerading as spirits. It is unusual for mediums not to be restrained in test situations, as has been the practice since spiritualism began, but although perhaps the Skull Group wanted to encourage things to flow in a more relaxed atmosphere, the Skull Group says virtually all visitors confirmed that they had felt touches, 
usually in places that were physically inaccessible to any members of the group. So this seems to suggest that they were touched on parts of their body, such as under the table, where a person would struggle to get to without anybody realising that they'd got up and started moving around. Also, it is said that the wristbands were made of Velcro, which would have made a noise, and this would have been heard, as long as the music wasn't too loud, and had anyone attempted to free themselves. And also, how could Edison's signature have been faked? (laughs) 